When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome back to another season of Novel Conversations. Before we start the show, I wanted to recommend another great podcast about books. It's the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. If you enjoy listening to Novel Conversations, I think you'll really enjoy this podcast as well. The Professional Book Nerds Podcast offers up book recommendations and interviews your favorite authors every Monday and Thursday. Both Jill Grunenwald and Adam Sokol have spent their careers in the book world and have an inside look on exciting books you're going to love. In addition to their twice-a-week episodes, each month they preview the best new books coming out. They're not just book nerds, they're professional book nerds. Visit professionalbooknerds.com, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, or check them out on our own network, evergreenpodcast.com. All right, up next, Novel Conversations. I'm Frank Lavallo, and this is Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. For each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. This novel conversation is about the novel The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, and I'm joined in my conversation by our Novel Conversations readers, Katie Smith and Peter Toomey. Katie, Peter, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Frank. Guys, before we get started, I'd like to read a brief summary of The Scarlet Letter. The Scarlet Letter is the story of Hester Prynne. She's convicted by church authorities of the sin of adultery after giving birth to her daughter, Pearl. Hester is shunned by her community and forced to wear an embroidered A on her breast to mark her as an adulteress. How her sin affects the others in her family, including her daughter, her daughter's father, and her estranged husband, and how her sin leads to her redemption make up the story of our novel, The Scarlet Letter, by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Katie, let me ask you, is this the first time you've read uh, The Scarlet Letter? I read it in high school, but not very thoroughly. I enjoyed it so much more this time. And Peter, how about you? Is this the first time you've read uh, Scarlet Letter? Frank, I think it was. It may have been forever ago, but I'm a lot older than she is, and (laughs) I just don't remember. We're all a lot older than she is. Okay. All right, with that introduction, let's get into our story. And we'll start by talking about Hester Prynne and her sin. However, Nathaniel Hawthorne doesn't really begin his story there. He gives us a whole introductory chapter called The Custom House before he ever gets to the story of Hester Prynne and her sin. Frank, I'd almost forgotten it was there. It gives Hawthorne's view of the society that he's in now and pretty much how he acquired the story of Hester Prynne. But along the way, he talks about the political situation and about working for the government. What really struck me was how little things have changed. Very little. You know, because he talks about being a civil servant and how that sucks the life out of you in a way. They're growing old in an office and basically come in and work for three hours and then nap against the wall. It's almost a cartoon. But some of the things he says applies to what's going on today. 
He says at the end, when he's going to be booted out of office because the new president has come in and the political parties have changed, so he says some of the same things you hear on the radio today. And when you're reading it, you know he'll say, well, in coming generations, this stuff will have improved and everything will be different. Mm -hmm. And you wonder (laughs) if he has his tongue in his cheek and how much he really believes it, because it really hasn't changed that much. You know, Peter, really hasn't changed that much. Now, Katie, Peter Denton mentioned that this chapter also tells us how Nathaniel Hawthorne came upon the story of Hester Prynne and the Scarlet Letter. Basically, he's rummaging up in the attic amongst some old court papers, and he finds a manuscript wrapped up by an embroidered Scarlet Letter. He takes this manuscript and creates a story out of it. Is that how he came up with the story, that he found the story and he just decided to give it a polish? No, and I like that question because one of the things I was discussing with Peter about this yesterday is that in reading The Scarlet Letter this time, it has very much a flavor to me of someone telling a legend or a cautionary tale. So it's almost to me immaterial about whether or not this is a true story. Peter, what do you think? Well, I think it's one of those things that you can choose to believe it's true or not. But he might have seen the germ or come across some little reference because he certainly was in a position to do that, and then maybe just started extrapolating from there. Sure, he may have come upon a court record indicating a woman had been convicted by the Church of Adultery, forced to wear a letter A, and then took the story from there. So let's move on to that story. The story starts with Hester Prynne coming out of the courthouse. She's coming out holding her child, and on the front of her dress is the Scarlet A. So when the book opens, she's already got that. You know, I found it interesting, though, that the conviction for adultery didn't actually occur until after she'd given birth. She obviously had been pregnant for nine months, and yet they didn't take action against her at that point. They waited for the child to be born. It's interesting because I didn't think about it that much, but it fits in with a lot of what the book does because everything is pretty much, you know, external. As long as the outside looks okay, you're fine. But when she had a child, it was irrefutable that she had committed adultery. I mean, you could think of her as being fat or she could have worn a loose gown. But if she had a child, that was that. We should mention that Hester's daughter is named Pearl, and we will come back and talk a little bit about Pearl. But I want to stay with Hester here for the moment. So what happens next is Hester Prynne is put onto a pillory and required to stand on this pillory for three or four hours while the townspeople are given the opportunity to jeer at her, to yell at her, to make fun of her. Hester is standing there for a while, and she notices a man standing in the crowd, and she recognizes this man. And we should say that the man recognizes her as well. But as they recognize each other, he indicates that she's not to speak who he is. And Peter, who is the stranger in the crowd? The stranger in the crowd is actually her husband. Well, wait, why did the townspeople not know who her husband was? Well, she'd come to the village, and her husband, who was a physician and a scientist, had been off studying. So he sent her from England alone, didn't he? Yes, he did, to Boston. And then he was going to follow her later, but then, because he never showed up, he was presumed lost at sea. But now we have him in the crowd standing there, looking at his wife. But he had been among the Indians, so he was dressed kind of in a ragtag way. So even if one knew that she had been married to a gentleman, the people in the crowd would not think of him as somebody to whom she could have been married. And it's after she recognizes her estranged husband that we're introduced to the third main character of our story, the preacher, or Reverend Dimsdale. Dimsdale is one of the younger preachers. And while she's on the pillory, one of the older preachers, who's sort of Dimsdale's mentor, says, 
Okay, she was your parishioner. Will you ask her to disclose the name of the father of the child so that this person can be brought to justice? And Dimsdale really doesn't want to, and he's really hesitant, and he's tremulous, and he says in a very melodic way, Please disclose the name so this person can find forgiveness. She says, No, I won't. And then he sort of says, She refuses and bows his head, and you sense this relief in the way. Relief in what way? Dimsdale, in his thinking, is how courageous she is. And it was at this point that I remember thinking, Lord Almighty, he's the father of the child. (laughs) Because I'd forgotten that part. I couldn't remember who was actually who. Now, if you had not remembered that, would that passage have clued you in that he was possibly the father of her child? I don't think so. Peter, how about you? Do you remember that it was Dimsdale who was the father? Yes, I did. And if you had not known that, would these passages have clued you into it? Yeah, I think there was kind of a whisper of that without actually coming out and saying that this is the guy. So, yes. You know, I have to say it would not have foreshadowed it for me. But moving on, after about three or four hours of her being subjected to this public humiliation, she is released and basically left to live her life, although as an outcast in the community. And it's at this moment that she and her estranged husband have a moment to talk. Her child is ill, and they call in her estranged husband because he's the new physician in town. And he comes in to treat the baby. And as they're talking, he also asks Hester who the father is. And again, she refuses to tell him. He then insists that she not tell any of the townspeople who he is, that he is in fact her estranged husband. So Hester is now in a position of keeping secrets on both sides. Exactly. She's keeping the secret of who the father of her child was. Right. And keeping the secret that her husband is actually alive and well and living in this town. Right. And he very much wants this information. He sees himself as the wronged husband. Let's be clear. This was not a happy reunion between husband and wife. And he will leave her alone as long as she keeps his secret. He's going by the name of Roger Chillingworth. And Katie, that's not the only thing he tells her in this meeting. He also makes a threat, doesn't he? Yes. He vows to track down the one who got her pregnant. And it's about this time now that the novel skips two or three years, and the next time we meet Hester, her daughter Pearl is about three or four years old. And we also come to learn that there's a new living arrangement in town between Chillingworth and Dimsdale. What's going on here? Roger Chillingworth, the physician and Hester's estranged husband, he's moved in with Reverend Dimsdale. Reverend Dimsdale, over these years, has continued to waste away and very pale and kind of frail. And Chillingworth has presented himself as both a friend and physician to Dimsdale, and now shares a household with him, so that he can keep an eye on his patient and be there whenever he needs him. Yes, and Chillingworth is trying to diagnose what he sees as Dimsdale's infirmity, and asks him, Do I know everything about you? Have you told me everything? Because frequently, the spirit influences the physical. And it could be something that you're having a problem with that's making you ill. And I have medicines that I've learned from the Indians, and I can help you if I know it all. (laughs) And Dimsdale gets angry with him for prying, and you get the feeling that the doctor's not going to give up. And Peter, at this point, the book goes into an account of Hester being the seamstress in town. That's how she's making her living, right? That she herself dresses very plainly, except for this elaborately embroidered A on her gray gown. She doesn't hide this A at all. And that's part of what the townsfolk talk about, that she has emblazoned this A on her very somber dress. 
There are many references in the book to this scarlet letter having a lurid gleam to it or casting some kind of bright light. Apparently, sometimes it even glows in the dark. Right. And it's not that she's proud of her adultery, but she refuses to be coward. Exactly. And she also pours a lot of her creativity or her imagination or her life energy into doing her needlework so that she makes beautiful embroidered gloves for the magistrates, and she embroiders baby clothes, and she always dresses her daughter very, very beautifully, so that even though Hester's dress is very plain and simple, Pearl is always decked out in lovely, luscious lace items. So, Katie, here we are about four years after the original conviction for adultery, and the town has clearly not accepted her any more than they had at the very beginning. They do buy her products, but still no one will talk to her. No one has anything to do with her. It's really her and Pearl against the world. Now, I think we also should make clear that as readers, it's about this time that we come to know that Chillingworth knows that Dimsdale is the father of Hester's child, Pearl. But that really comes to us in the totality of the information we get from the novel. There's no one moment in the novel where Chillingworth says, aha, that proves to me that you, Dimsdale, are the father of Pearl. Yeah, it builds. Little pieces here and little pieces there. I was actually struck very much by the whole sense of the spiritual illness making his flesh waste away. It's almost like Hawthorne was kind of prefiguring what many people believe today, that there's no separation between the body and the mind, and that many illnesses can be exacerbated by emotional problems. For me, that was probably one of the most intriguing and modern moments in the novel. I might want to use the phrase psychosomatic illnesses that are apparent in Dimsdale. We have to believe that these illnesses are coming from his internal strife, from what's going on in his mind and his heart, because he knows he's committed adultery, and yet he's the one who's remained silent. He's the one who's allowed Hester to suffer years of public humiliation. He hasn't come forth at all. We see Hester almost blooming throughout this time, and we see Dimsdale continuing to waste away and waste away. You know, there's one interesting little passage where Dimsdale has fallen asleep in a chair and Chillingworth walks over and he pulls aside his clerical shirt and he looks at his chest and he's like, "Uh uh-huh. Then he walks away and you know from reading that Dimsdale frequently grabs his chest when he's feeling weak and you're thinking, well, okay, tell me more. But you hear nothing else about this for a long time in the book. And I'm going to ask you not to tell me more about this just yet either. What I want to do is skip ahead just as the novel does. And now we meet Pearl, and she's about seven years old, and Hester has continued in her life. She's a seamstress in town, still shunned by everyone, but still wildly popular for the products that she creates. And it's at this time now that Hester makes a decision. Things really can't remain this way forever. I've got a daughter here who's getting older. She's beginning to hear things in town. She's starting to be shunned herself. And Hester feels changes have to be made. And the impetus for this change comes from Chillingworth, who tells her, I know who the father of your child is, and I'm going to tell everybody. Hester really has a sense that enough is enough. And she tells her former husband, Roger Chillingworth, that she's going to tell Dimsdale that Chillingworth is her husband. She knows Dimsdale has gone on a pastoral call to someone. She waits for him to come back, and they have this conversation in the forest, in which Hester tells Dimsdale that Chillingworth is her estranged husband, and that he does not have Dimsdale's best interests at heart. Dimsdale thinks Chillingworth is his best friend, and he's actually his worst enemy. Exactly. Chillingworth is not only giving him physical medicines that we aren't sure are helping, but he's also psychologically toying with Dimsdale. Absolutely. 
So Hester and Dimsdale have this conversation, and out of this conversation, they devise a plan. And basically, Peter, they decide they're going to leave the country. Hester has done work for a man who is a captain of a ship that's going to go to Bristol. She says that she and Pearl can go, and Dimsdale can come with them, and they could live together, the three of them. Dimsdale agrees to this. All they have to do is wait four days, and they can reveal who they are and go off to have a life together with Pearl, overseas and away from the colony. But before we talk about what happens to his plan and how successful it really is, let's take a quick break to talk about our sponsor for season six of Novel Conversations, Literati, the leading kids' book club in America. With libraries, schools, and bookstores shut down right now, how do you keep your kids learning and growing? Well, we think Books from Literati, the number one book club for kids, is the best place to start. Literati is a subscription book club that makes it easy to find unique and interesting books for your kids by delivering great stories straight to their doorstep. Literati knows that home deliveries will be critical in meeting your need for uplifting and educational materials in the coming weeks. And we all know that reading books together help create a time of adventure and bonding for your family, and it has real educational benefits. Kids who read books have better vocabularies and longer attention spans. Each Literati box contains five beautiful books based on a theme and contains exclusive original art and a personalized note to your child. And listeners, as an educator of five and sixth grade students, I've had a great time sharing these books with my students, and I'm sure you'll have a great time sharing them with your kids as well. And so, all you fans of Novel Conversations, right now we're giving our listeners a special limited time offer. Go to literati.com novel for 25% off your first two orders. This is their best offer available anywhere. But to get it, you have to go to literati.com novel for 25% off your first two orders. All right, back to our discussion about the novel, The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. When we left, we had Hester and Reverend Dimsdale in the forest making plans to leave the country with their daughter, Pearl. So they're going to sail off and have a wonderful life. Happily ever after, right? Well, you would think so. They only had a little bit more to go through before they got to leave. They had elected a new governor, and Reverend Dimsdale was supposed to preach the sermon that day, and that was going to be his last duty. And after the conversation in the forest, he was much more invigorated. He looked a lot better. The events you're talking about take place about four or five days after their meeting in the forest. And just in those four or five days, the reverend starts to look a little better. He's not quite as pale. He's not quite as wispy. Now comes the day of the celebration, and the reverend has to give his final speech. Yes. And Hester is in the square with the townspeople, watching him go into the church. And it's very crowded with all kinds of officials. And she's there with Pearl, and she's outside listening. And she can hear mostly the tones of what he's saying, but not the words. And Pearl is kind of scampering around, as Pearls want to do. And the captain of the ship, which is going to take them away, calls Pearl over. And he says, Would you tell your mother the physician, Roger Chillingworth, will also be on board? And Pearl tells her mother this. And Hester just freezes. Then, meantime, Dimsdale has finished his sermon. Everybody is saying that it's the best one he's ever preached. And he's coming out of the church. And as he comes out, he's getting paler. And he looks like he did before, but worse. He can barely walk. And he walks by the pillory where, seven years ago, Hester had been shunned and humiliated by the public. And he basically has an epiphany. He decides that he needs to tell the truth and he needs to do it now before he goes into eternity with a sin on his soul. But Katie, he decides not only just to tell the public, he decides to proclaim it. But he can't just jump up on that pillory. 
No, because he's about to pass over to the other side. So he enlists Hester's help, and she's very reluctant to do this, but he insists that she come over to him, and she's the one that actually physically supports him to stand up on the pillory. They also bring Pearl up there so that the three of them, the family unit in essence, are standing there together. Finally, we have the grand confession. He admits that he's the father of Pearl, that he had committed adultery with Hester, and then he decides to show the crowd his own scarlet letter. He pulls aside his shirt, and some people say that they saw a scarlet letter on his breast. But this was no embroidered letter A. No, it was like a stigmata. A lot of the townspeople say that that's what they saw. Well, what do you believe they saw? For me, I was led to believe that he'd been carving a letter into his body for all these years, and that's why he kept his hand over his breast so often. Well, that's interesting, because they did say he scourged himself. Now, I was thinking, being raised Catholic, that psychologically, you could probably produce something like that. Katie? I actually had the same sense as Peter, that his own guilty conscience was probably working on him much more than the townspeople. All right, so we do all agree that there was a physical manifestation of his sin. We just don't agree on where it came from or what caused it. Right. And then finally, what happens to our Reverend Dimsdale after he bears his breast and shows his letter? He does collapse at that point, and Hester again is supporting him. He says his head is resting on her bosom, which is right where the scarlet letter is. And then he says, farewell, and he dies. And how does our story finally end? There's a chapter after this appropriately entitled The Conclusion, in which Hester and Pearl actually disappear for a while. Chillingworth dies a couple years later. He leaves Pearl a great deal of money and property. She's now one of the wealthiest girls in the nation. Yeah. Then after a number of years, Hester actually comes back. But she comes back without Pearl. But she comes back with her A. Yes. With the Scarlet Letter and resumes her residence on the outskirts of town and lives a very quiet life there. Right, Katie, a quiet life, but also a productive life. Many of the women in the town see Hester out. There's a great line in here about this, and it says, Women, most especially in the continually recurring trials of wounded, wasted, wronged, misplaced, or erroring, and sinful passion— or with the dreary burden of a heart unyielded, because undervalued and unsought, came to Hester's cottage, demanding why they were so wretched, and what was the remedy? Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Hester comforted and consoled them as best she might. She assured them, too, of her firm belief that at some brighter period where the world should have grown ripe for it, in heaven's own time, a new truth would be revealed to establish the whole relation between man and woman on a surer ground of mutual happiness. Finally, a moment of redemption for Hester. Exactly. And Katie, how do we finally end this novel? Hester dies, and according to the lines here, After many, many years, a new grave was delved near an old and sunken one. And the old and sunken one is Dimsdale's. And according to the book, 
It was near that old and sunken grave, yet with a space between, as if the dust of the two sleepers had no right to mingle, yet one tombstone served for both. And on the tombstone, the letter A in red. All right, so let's talk about Nathaniel Hawthorne and his novel, A Scarlet Letter. Did he write this to tell us how sinful adultery was? I got a very different sense of it. Well, tell me what you got from it. When I was reading, I kept thinking, in essence, what's the big deal? They had an affair, and I'm not condoning that. I'm only saying, to me, the bigger sin, if you will, was the hypocrisy and the cruelty with which the townspeople and the magistrates and the clergy treated her because they never let her forget what had happened. And they never have any sense of forgiveness or acceptance. I think Hawthorne saw a lot of unfairness. I think he saw a lot of joylessness. Joylessness in his religion? In the religion and in the lives people led, so that it almost made joy a sin. I think it's a love story in a sense, and that these two people did love each other. Are we actually ever given a clear example in the novel that this is a love match? Actually, yes. It becomes clear that it's a sign of Hester's love that she keeps silent about the identity of her fellow adulterer. Because the townspeople wanted to know, Chillingworth wanted to know, and the penalty would be death for this man. So she kept silent all those years so that he could live and could have as productive a life as she was able to give him. I think this book is very much a book about people's characters and how they handle themselves with dignity or how they buckle under their own cowardice. And those things are always true about human beings. People still struggle with those things today, and I think always will, because we are, after all, human. Very good, very good. I I totally agree with you. Okay, in this last segment, what I'd like from you now is a moment or a passage in the novel that makes the book memorable for you and makes it a book worth reading. Katie, do you have something you want to share? I do. We actually haven't said much about Pearl as a character in the book, but there's a little paragraph near the end which I really like that really illuminates Pearl to me through much of the book. They talk about her being an elf and a sprite. They even sometimes use the word demonic. To me, she's almost not a person in the book, but a symbol. And sometimes they even talk about her being the living symbol of the Scarlet Letter. But at the very end of the book when the Reverend Dimsdale is actually collapsed in the pillory. He wants Pearl to kiss him before he dies. And this is the quote here. It said, Pearl kissed his lips. The spell was broken. The great scene of grief in which the wild infant bore apart had developed all her sympathies, and as her tears fell upon her father's cheek, they were the pledge that she would grow up amid human joy and sorrow, nor forever do battle with the world but be a woman in it. Towards her mother, too, Pearl's errand as a messenger of anguish was all fulfilled. To me, that's a lot about hope in this situation. Even though Hester and the Reverend Dinsdale, who have a lot of grief and sorrow in their life, the child that they produced, who up until this point was kind of this demonic character, somehow then becomes human through all of this, through her father's confession of guilt and then goes on to become a grown woman and finds human joy and sorrow in the world. I love redemption stories, and that's a lot of what this is about for me. Katie, I'm glad you mentioned the word redemption because that's what I was thinking as well. Not only is it a moment of hope, but it is a moment of redemption for Hester, for Reverend Dimsdale, and of course for their daughter Pearl as well. Peter, do you have something you want to share? Well, for me, the best books are where I see something of my own life manifest in the characters. 
Uh, you can get aggravated with Hester and Dimsdale. Things such as, why was he such a wuss? Why didn't he confess earlier? Why did Hester stay? There's nothing that said if she went someplace else, she couldn't just get rid of this scarlet A. I found the following passage, quoting, She hid from herself the secret of why she stayed, and grew pale whenever it struggled out of her heart like a serpent from its hole. She deemed herself connected in a union that, unrecognized on earth, would bring them together before the bar of final judgment, and make that their marriage altar for joint futurity of endless retribution. She barely looked the idea in the face and hastened to bar it in its dungeon. What she compelled herself to believe was half a truth and half a self-delusion. Here, she said to herself, had been the scene of her guilt, and here should be the scene of her earthly punishment. And so, perchance, the torture of her daily shame would at length purge her soul and work out another purity than that which she had lost, more saint-like because the result of martyrdom. So she stayed because she loved him and because she had hope against all hope that somehow she would be able to see him and in some way connect with him, even though she hardly ever spoke to him. And even though I could say I'm not a romantic, that is the truest kind of love. I've seen people do these kinds of things in relationships and in situations, and I've done it myself, where everybody around you says that you should have given up on this a long time ago, yet you don't. And you tell yourself and other people all kinds of reasons, and the reason is really the simplest one, that you love the person, or you love the institution, or you love the situation you're in, in spite of everything that's bad. And I think that is Hester's strength. You know, Peter, I also have a moment from Hester. Throughout this entire novel, we've all commented that her outward appearance is one of almost acceptance. She seems to go along with the way the town treats her. So you almost get the impression that she's got an equanimity about her in accepting this. But there's one throwaway line early in the novel that tells you that she's not so accepting of it. Let me read you that quote. She was patient, a martyr indeed. But she refused to pray for her enemies, lest in spite of her forgiving aspirations, the words of the blessing should stubbornly twist themselves into a curse. So here's a woman who outwardly seems serene, seems to have accepted her fate, and yet she will not even offer a prayer for the people in the town that are harassing her because of the chance that the prayer might turn into a curse. She does have some resentment and some anger, very well buried, but there's anger nonetheless. I think Hester presents a lot of dichotomies. And one of the other pieces that I had marked talked about Hester. It says, She had in her nature a rich, voluptuous, oriental characteristic, a taste for the gorgeously beautiful, which, save in the exquisite production of her needle, found nothing else in all the possibilities of her life to exercise itself upon. So to me, that says a couple of things. One of which is about she has this rich oriental characteristic inside herself, this voluptuous self, but she never really lets that out in any kind of display, except for the red A that she has embroidered for herself, and in the beautiful clothes that she makes for other people. That also talks to me about the people's creativity coming from their dark side or their shadow side. And so in this sense of a redemption story, she somehow transforms everything that she's been through into these really beautiful creations. Absolutely. 
One other thing I'd like to mention before we end this show is one of the minor characters of the book that we didn't get a chance to talk about, Mistress Hibbins. She's a witch. Nathaniel Hawthorne makes her a witch, and he has her going into the forest at night. She claims she's flying around with her devil father. Was this an attempt at comic relief, or was he trying to show us the superstitions of the Puritans? I actually think he was trying to show us the mindset of the people at that time. I do think that it's maybe not just a superstition of the people of that period, but in many cases, they really believed that those were real incidents and that people really did do those things back then. I think it's interesting that Mistress Hibbins, I believe, is the governor's sister. Mm -hmm. So he's directly related to the woman who claims to be a witch. And you get the feeling that perhaps one of the reasons that nothing is done to her is because of her societal position. So political connections can even help a witch? Sure. And that says something about the society. It says something about our society as well. When we see corruption and people are saying all the time, if it were not for his or her money or connections or political clout, he or she would be in jail. And nothing happens to her. She's never burned at the stake. She talks about flying around, and whether she's just crazy or she actually does this, they just let her go. I think that's another case of showing this dark light metaphor throughout the whole book. Here's this very upstanding governor, but his sister is meeting the devil in the forest. Again, there's that sense of the light and the dark and how people, not just back then, but people today still, they split those things instead of recognizing that as humans, we have all those characteristics inside us. We're all a little good. We're all a little bad. All right, I think on that note, we'll end our conversation about Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. Once again, I want to thank you both for coming in and having this conversation with me today, Peter and Katie. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us, Frank. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. Novel Conversations is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, formerly the Front Porch People. If you'd like to hear more Novel Conversations, you can go to our new network at evergreenpodcast.com or listen on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps. Novel Conversations was produced by Julie Fink and engineered by Sean Rule Hoffman. A special thanks to our executive producer, Joan Andrews, and our researchers, Carol Wallencheck and Becky Katzenmeyer. And I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. Until next time, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business, when you need it, from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.